I went to the taco truck yesterday. <clears throat> I just walked there. It's a half a block from our house. So I walked and I walked and I went without my shoes on. It was just, Don's been trying me to like, trying to get me to do this like, enjoy mother nature thing. So she's like, nature a little. So just, you know, so I, I was by myself. I was studying. She had the kids. And I went and got uh, tacos and I didn't have my shoes on. And as I'm standing in line, some guy comes up to me. And he's like, you must have really strong feet. <laughs> I'm like, uh, I know, I just live a half a block away. But he, he, he was very compassionate, like, where are your shoes? And then uh, I went home and ate my tacos, and then, and then Dawn was like, I want tacos. So then I went back to get her tacos. And, and again, I didn't wear my shoes or my socks, and I'm just sitting there in line, and a guy's riding his bike, and he slams on his brakes, and he looks at my feet, and he's like, dude, what happened to your shoes? And I'm like, I'm like dude, no, we're, we're just just half a block away. I just stepped out. I'm just trying to do the nature thing, you know? But he was a very compassionate. And, and I think that sometimes it's easy to think that just like the world has just gone mad and nobody cares about anybody. But two different people, both times I went to the taco truck, just a half a block from my house, uh, I had people concerned about my well-being for shoes. I mean, the guy on the bike, I felt like he was like, give me his bike. Like, here, you just ride this so that you don't have to walk on the cement or something. He didn't do that, but I told him I was, but he was, I don't know, I just, I wanted to say that. People are, people are nice. They're not all nice. The world is not all butterflies and roses, but those people were nice. So, I know that last week was highly personal. Uh, I could say sorry about that, but I think it was needed. Um, and my hope uh, is that it was relevant to where the world is today with all of the crazy things that keep happening. You know, we talked about it from the mass shootings to the suicide of Jeffrey Epstein and kind of the, the, the realities that that shined a light onto as to kind of like how the world could actually be in a place where things like this are possible. Uh, and, 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 and what we really tried to hone in on is why, yes, things are super screwed up, but why we truly and genuinely believe that the church really is the hope of the world. And why we believe wholeheartedly that we should be shining brighter in the places that are darker than ever before. Like, so when, when the world is at its darkest, that's a chance for the church to shine the brightest light that it ever has before. Now, it is very obvious to me, it's, I think it should be obvious to all of us, that there is in our world a power system that's built on oppression that runs it. Uh, and that's, you know, that's sin with a capital S. It's this big idea that says this is the dominates, that what dominates the world is, is, is a system of sin. Yet in the midst of that, we, we, the gospel really truly is that Jesus has come ushering in another way. It's a way of nonviolence. It's a way of meekness. It's a way of mercy. It's a way of generosity. And he shows us how ultimately that's what's going to win the world even though it doesn't seem that way. I call it maybe a hopeful resistance. A hope that you and I are actually willing to not only believe in, but actually put into action. A, genuinely, a genuine belief that the world doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be that it, the way that it is. And God, in fact, has truthfully, he has ordained his church to bring about the healing to the people who are hurting because everything is so broken. Now, we may, not, we may not be able to fix all of the systems. Some of them I believe we can, and some of them I believe we will. Uh, and if you're able to position yourself to be a part of something like that, I encourage you to do that. Like we said last week, we need people who are willing to actually not just, not just pick up the pieces along the Jericho Road, but actually work to rebuild the whole road, to actually make it a safe place for everybody. 
I, I believe that the church is called to do that. I believe we're called not to just put band-aids on all the cuts, but to actually find what's cutting everybody and help remove that, try to get rid of that. And to make it so the cuts don't keep coming. But the reality is we're not going to be able to fix every broken system. Like for instance, Jesus says, the poor you'll have with you always. Now, that doesn't mean we don't help the poor. That doesn't mean we don't fight to eliminate homelessness in our region, in, in the communities that we're given charge of. But there is going to be things in, in our lives that are bigger than us. That's what we talked about last week. That's why we need God and why we need the Holy Spirit. Because we're not going to be able to fix every single thing on our own. But what we can do, I think the first step in fixing the Jericho Road is being the Good Samaritan. We can pick up the people who are tossed aside by the broken systems or held down by them or marginalized by them. And we can demonstrate to them a new way to be human that maybe seems contrary to the way that rules the world today. And we can allow God to actually use us in, in these different situations to create solutions where we're not just picking people up forever. We're actually teaching people about a whole other way to live. Because if enough broken people realize you don't have to be broken, and you don't have to be dictated by a world that genuinely does not care about you. Eventually, if enough people rise up for that, the world will begin to change. The policies will begin to change. And more importantly, what is considered normal will begin to change. And what we're going to do in a moment is we're going to read one of the most spiritualized passages in the entire Bible, but we're going to read it in context of the rest of the book of Romans and of chapter 8. I warned you last week, last week was highly personal, this week is highly theological. We are going to, we're going to go through the Bible today, we're going to teach through this passage in a way that is, this is what it's, we believe it's saying. And what, what I found in this, and what I believe that you will see by the end of today is that even the most spiritual things have the most practical applications to them. And I hope that, I really hope that this passage, because this is kind of a big moment in Romans, at the end of Romans 8, I really hope that this secures for you the fact that the entire book of Romans really truly is about the church rising and becoming who we're called to be. And what we're called to be is image bearers of Christ ultimately here to fulfill the cultural mandate, the very original thing that God intended for humanity. We said something in the final moments of the sermon last week, and I think you need to hear it again just so that we can kind of go into it with this framework. Because in our world right now, we, again, we encourage people to, to stand up, to, to stand up for people who can't speak for themselves, to be a voice for the voiceless, but it can be very easy in our battles to feel like we're all alone. And to feel like we're standing alone when we stand up for others. But like we said last week, God wants justice even more than you do. He does. He wants things to get better even more than you do. Honestly, whatever it is in your heart that you've determined, hey, the world must not go on this way, God put that in you because he wants that too. And the Bible actually lays out for us many reasons why the world cannot just keep going on this way and be okay. Why the world cannot just go on forever while injustice runs rampant. And his heart for our world is that it would be made whole. And it will be made whole because of you. 
So let's read. We're going to read verse 26 through 30. A couple of these are overlap from last week, and then we're going we're gonna to just dive in. Verse 26 says this. We read it last week. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. The literal description is that God brought order out of chaos. He made sense of something that was chaotic. He created all these amazing things. And then he created man from dust. He created woman from the man. And he told them, be fruitful and multiply. Work the earth, subdue the earth, spread the image of God everywhere you go. That's, that's, that's the cultural mandate. In other words, what God told mankind from the very, very beginning is he says, you are my image bearers on earth. You look like me. And what, what you create, you create on my behalf. You represent me to the people. And you're doing these things and you're doing them in my name. So they were given responsibility over the garden. And this is very significant. They were given the responsibility over the whole garden, and God was giving them everything that they needed. Everything they needed was provided for them, and yet something in them determined that they needed more than what God could offer. So they ate from the one fruit that they were commanded not to eat from, because a serpent promised them, hey, if you, if you eat from this tree, what it will give you is it will give you the, the ability to determine good and evil on your own. And when they ate that fruit, because we know they ate it, their eyes were opened, is what the Bible says, not only to what was good and to what was evil in theory, but also in praxis, in practice, in real life. Now they've opened up a world in where there's death and where there's judgment, where women have pain in childbearing. And the, the very ground that we're called to work, like the cultural mandate is work, the ground, and the ground that we're called to work now is, could be called cursed, and now it's painful to do that. Our bodies experience suffering. And humankind has been groaning ever since that moment. Because in our own attempts to navigate good and evil, we may be able to diagnose evil. But we do not have the wisdom that God intended to give us in the garden, that first his wisdom, to impart to us for how to deal with that evil. And how to deal with that pain. Remember, I'm going to say this to you like 10 times today, but Adam literally means humanity. The word ad Adam, it means humanity. And his story is my story, and his story is your story. And the whole world has been telling the same story in different ways for thousands of years. That's the problem of Adam. That's the problem of humanity. Now, in attempting to solve this problem, 
Let's do a bit of a recap of what we did last week, but with a little different spin. Last week, we concluded on this thought that the Holy Spirit prays for us. He's praying for us. He's interceding on our behalf when we don't know how to pray. And he's doing it with groans too deep for words. Now, we have to grasp that concept and everything that we learned last week because it will launch us deep into what Paul goes into here next, even though people like to separate these two. So before this, it says, it says all creation groans. That's, that's how it starts. This is significant the way it goes. Verse 22, all creation groans because the world is not as it should be. It's, it's important, though, that Paul then distinguishes apart, yes, the world is groaning, but you, the church, are also groaning. We're groaning about the same thing, but the difference in the distinction he makes is the church is groaning, but the church has hope. And so the significance here is that God has placed the church into a world that is not as it should be, but he's placed us there to do something about it. So we're placed in the same broken place. We have the same broken bodies experiencing the same broken things, but we at the same time are the carriers of hope. And what do people of God do when they don't know what else to do? Verse 26, they pray. We pray. Now please hear this. This is very significant in framing this. The heart of the gospel is this. Jesus came into our pain. He redeemed us in the midst of it, and he wants to restore our lives, and he has called us to something greater. And the job of the church is to do the exact same thing in the world. To throw ourselves right in the middle of all the broken messes and fix what we can when we can. And when we don't have a clue how to do it, we pray. We stand in the gap, that place that uh, Moses stood in between God and Israel, between the judgment that Israel deserved when they built the golden calf and, the, and, and, and them. He, he, he's the, he was there, he was petitioning for mercy. They deserved one thing, but he begged for mercy. So the passages from last week, if you read them closely, they really are a defining set of scriptures that describe the role of the church in a world that truly doesn't know its right hand from its left. And the reason I use that phrasing is because that's the way that God uses it when he talks to Jonah. So God calls Jonah to Nineveh. He said, hey, go to Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, uh, Israel's arch enemy. Jonah doesn't want to go. And Jonah basically tells God, God, it would be a lot easier if you would just kill my enemies. There would be a lot more justice if you would just give them the thing that they deserve. And God tells Jonah, he says, should I not pity Nineveh? There are so many people there. He says, there's 120,000 people there. And basically, he says, they're groaning. He says, they don't know their right hand from their left. They don't know right from wrong. They don't have anybody who's willing to go in there and teach them how to live. And they don't have anybody who will show them really what it even means to be human. And without an example to live by, they're going to keep living for themselves. They're going to keep hurting anybody who gets in their way and they're going to keep going toward their own objectives that are in their mind. And those objectives to them, honestly, won't even be clear because at the end of the day, nobody knows what they want anyway. Most of us don't have a clue what we want. We just know we want something different. And so in Nineveh's case, and, in, and I think in most cases, with, especially with empires, we do the things to achieve that at the expense of others thinking that's going to give me a sense of superiority or a sense of power. But in the end, they're just as empty as anybody. So what do you do? You groan. You say, wow, I just took over an entire nation and I don't feel any different. 
I still don't know my right hand from my left. All the things that we try to do to find the answers only prove to us just how far away we are from the answer. And the world has been groaning from the beginning of time, from Genesis 3 all the way to the flood, to the captivity in Egypt, to the exodus and the 40 years of wandering, to the days of Jonah and Assyria, the Babylonian empire, kept the captivity in Babylon, all the way until now. But God has strategically placed his people, you and I, the church, throughout history, into the lives of the hurting and into the situations that are broken so that we can be agents of reconciliation and healing. And when we don't know what to do, what Paul says we're able to do through the Holy Spirit, and this is very significant, he says through the Holy Spirit, what we're able to do through our prayers and through groaning too deep for words, we are, able, we are actually able to take that pain and stand in the gap. And in the spiritual realm, we can literally carry the pains and the groans of the world right to the feet of Jesus, who wants justice even more than you do. But we don't just say prayers, and we don't just groan, and let the Spirit handle it when there are practical things that we can do. And that's where I think that many people kind of land on this section in Romans. They think, oh, we're going to let God sort it out, right? Because we're Christians, and we at least know from this passage, right, no matter what happens to the rest of the world, he's at least going to take care of us. Isn't that how most of us read this passage? We know God does all things for those who love him, right? I'm telling you, that is not right. That is not a good mindset, but it comes from the way we read this, right? It says, this is one of the, those Bible verses, people love it, right? We say, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called uh, according to his purpose. It's one of the most famous passages. It's one of the most quoted passages. And part of the reason that we quote this passage so much is because it makes us feel good because we're Christians. And we think that believing in Jesus means that everything's just going to work out for us. Again, like we said last week, it, it's made people kind of get a bit comfortable sitting in their own spaces, their safe places, their sacred spaces, while the rest of the world just sort of goes to crap. It burns. Well, first of all, it says for those who love God, which loving God does not mean sitting in your room and telling him how great he is. If you love someone, you do whatever you can to connect to their heart. And God's heart is people. So, to say that you love God, but then don't care at all about anybody else, that's an oxymoron. 1 John 4.20 says, anybody who says I love God and hates his brother, you're a stinking liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen can't love God who he hasn't seen. It says, we, we, before that it says, we, we only are able to love because he first loved us. He showed us how much he loved us. And anybody who can be wrapped up in the arms of grace that meets you in your most broken place, uh, and then you can't turn and show that same love to another person, literally, you cannot say that you love God. So there's that. Like, I've had moments, and I know that this sounds weird, but I've had moments in my life, where people have told me something like this, so-and-so did something to me. They hurt me. They did this thing or that thing or whatever. And then something horrible happened to them. I just know that was God taking care of me. I just knew it would work out. They came against me. I love God, so God took care of it. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. How you love the person who is the least lovable in your entire world is a demonstration of how you love God. Jeremiah talks about knowing God. He, he, he says, he explains in one simple verse that knowing God has nothing to do with reading your Bible or speaking in tongues. 
Knowing God is taking care of the poor and the needy. Some translations said he pled the cause of the poor and needy. I really like the way the uh, Berean Study Bible puts it. It says, he took up the cause of the poor and the needy, and because of that, it went well for him. Is not that what it means to know me? Declares the Lord. How, how do you know if you know, if you know God? Well, do you do this? Because that's what it says it means to know him. Of course, we all know Matthew 25. We're all at the final, on that last day, and Jesus is like, you didn't take care of me. You're like, when did I not take care of you? When did we not take care of Jesus? When did we not prove our lives um, cared about him and that we loved him? And when did we not visit him when he was in prison? We didn't know you were in prison. Well, what's the answer? When you did not take care of the least of these. So the wording in Romans 8, 28 in most translations, it says all things work together to those who love God. The Greek word uh, for to those is the word haughty. Uh, it's used, it's translated in the, uh, in the New Testament 264 times that way as to those. But the same exact word is also translated 173 times as because. So that phrase, just with this one word translated just slightly differently, could just as likely, almost as likely, because it's a few times less, could almost as likely say all things work together for good because of those who love God. In fact, N.T. Wright actually argues on really stable ground in stuff that I don't, saying things that some of it I don't even understand, that the entire Greek sentence there, far beyond this one word, when it's properly read and you put the right verbs in the right places, which I don't really know how to do, it actually should read all things work together by means of those who love God. Suddenly, You're not just sitting in your bedroom waiting for God to save the day. Instead, you're leaving your safe space. You're covered by the Holy Spirit who's interceding with you on behalf of all the things that you have no clue how to fix. And you go out there and you give it your best shot to make the world a better place. And sometimes it is just going to be taking a petition before the throne of grace and saying, God, do what only you can do because I don't have a clue what to do right now. But sometimes there's a practical answer. Sometimes it's going and buying somebody a burger or, or listening to somebody for three hours as they talk to you and you just hear their story and you give them a, and you feel for what they're going through. Sometimes it's doing the work to stand up for the oppressed or to face the system or to speak up for the marginalized or to pick up the fallen and to show them that there is a love that is so much greater than the pain that they're living in right now. But the key to all of this, in fact, I would argue the key to all of Romans especially one through eight, in my view, is found in the next two verses. I'm going to read both of them a couple times for you. But first, look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, we get caught up on the word predestined. Don't. Uh, When we get to nine, we'll try to sort that out a little bit more for you. The easiest way Uh, that I found to think of this is with the word destiny. Okay, you have a destiny. You have a plan. God had a plan for Israel. You have to understand Israel to understand Romans and kind of how that worked. But God had a plan for Israel and a destiny for Israel. And even though Israel kept screwing it up and even found themselves in exile, even when they're in exile, what does God say? I still have a plan for you. I know the plans I have for you. They're still good. We do not in this church believe that this is saying that God from the beginning of, the time, of time determined who will go to heaven and who won't. We don't believe that. Actually, just so you all know, 
uh, about us and our theology, the way that we view the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven not just being something that we go to someday, but also in something that we usher in here, a place we bring to earth now, I, I honestly believe it is impossible to hold that and also believe that God just predetermines who goes where. Um, I, I believe that they don't line up, they don't work together at all. But just look at, look at verse 30, because verse 30 will give you a little bit of, of, shed some light on this, and then we'll come back to 29. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, I, I hope that this helps you view this. Um, justification, you know what this means. It means God declares you righteous. It means declared righteous. So justification is that. Now, called there, it, it's essentially conversion. Uh, it literally means to give a name to or to bear a name or a title. So if you bear the name of Christ, if you call yourself a Christian, or if God has called you to, you know, if, if, if you're there, if you call yourself a Christian or others call you a Christian, you bear the name of Christ, right? That's somebody who's called. Those who have had that moment when they say, you know what, my life isn't as it should be. I cannot save myself. I need Jesus to step into my world and take me to a better place. Those, those who come to those, that conclusion that says, I need Jesus, those who do that, he declares righteous. And those he declares righteous, he glorifies. Now, Paul, when he talks about glory and glorifying, he does not mean that whoever God declares righteous, he then brings to heaven and has this transfiguration moment where all of a sudden there's, the lights are shining bright on them and it's exciting. I'm not saying that's not going to happen someday. I don't know. For sure. But I am saying with almost, almost certainty, as much certainty as I can have, that's not what Paul's saying here. Remember earlier when we talked about the exchange? Do you remember ultimately what they exchanged in Romans 1.23? They exchanged glory. Uh, I was listening to the Bible Project podcast, and Tim Mackey was talking about this verse, and one thing that he said that just made this easy for me to communicate this to you, really helped me frame this with glory here, is he says, well, you exchange glory, and most people think that that means something coming, but you can't exchange something that you don't have. You, you have this thing. You possess this thing. You can't exchange something unless you possess it. So if we all view glory as something we'll one day have, as in we're going to glow someday in heaven or whatever, we mi we'll miss the point that Paul makes it very clear that glory is actually something you have right now and you're choosing to exchange. You know, what Paul is primarily drawing in Romans when he talks about glory is he's primarily referring to Romans 8, or, I'm sorry, Psalm 8. Uh, Psalm 8 is when David says, God, you've crowned man with your glory. You've given man dominion over the earth. You've put all things under their feet. Basically, it's the cultural mandate. The literal word in Hebrew is kavod, and in, in Greek, it's doxa. It, it literally means a weight. It's heavy or weighty is what it means. It's the same word as honor. You know, honor and respect are very different things. You know, you have to earn respect, but honor goes with the chair. Like if a king walks in, whether you despise that king or not, or the president or not, he walks in, you still show him honor because it goes with his chair. It, 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 that, that person has a job that carries a lot of weight. It's very, very obvious. That's, that, it's kind of the same thing with when it's used as glory. It's very similar. To say that we're the glory of God is to say that we've been given a very big job. We've been given the task and the weight, the, heaven, the heaviness of ruling and ushering in the kingdom of God by way of Jesus. A biblical example in the Old Testament that I heard somebody use was that of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they're, they're in the Babylonian exile, but they're so faithful and they stood out. And so they were promoted to a place of kavod, 
a place of honor, a place of glory, a place above others so that they could help be part of leading things or reigning things. But when they were given that glory, what did they do? They, they ultimately honored God in more than anything, and then, of course, they honored God at all, no matter what. So it was taken from them, and in the end, God still won. It's a whole other story. But what it really ultimately comes down to, what glory comes down to, is the cultural mandate. The very first mission that God ever gave to people, the mission that Adam was given, fill the earth with the glory of God, be fruitful and multiply, work the earth and subdue it. In fact, Psalm 8 is actually considered to be a commentary of uh, Genesis 1, 26 through 28, uh, by saying that humans were made in the image of God. It just, it, the only difference is one says image and one says glory, but Paul in Corinthians says, well, man is actually the image and the glory of God. He's here both. So humankind was destined from the beginning, before you were even born, to be part of being God's image bearers on earth, creating the world that God dreams of. And the bottom line of Romans 8, and every single thing that has led us to the point that we're at right now is found here in verse 29. And this is what it says. And this is a really big thought and a big idea. Try to hang with it. I know I warned you this was going to be a more theological day. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And what did he predestine them for? To be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We are destined by God to be conformed in the image. Notice this, not of God. Yes, of God in a way, but not of God as they would have thought of in that day. Not of God as in the language we get in Genesis 1, but specifically in the image of his son. See, Adam was called to be the image of God here on earth, and he failed. We are called to be the image of the Son of God on earth. And we have a chance at not failing. Paul writes this as something that he actually believes can happen. We have what it takes to be the people that the world needs us to be so that we can bring the hope to all of the darkest places. If we model our lives after the only person who's worth modeling your life after. Haley Gorenson Jacob wrote a book primarily about, just about Romans 8.29 called Conform to the Image of His Son. And she draws together in it verses uh, 29 and verse 30 and explains how when you understand glory and you understand what it actually means to be glorified, which is what we've been describing to you, that's really the key to us being conformed into the image of His Son. See, here's where this really made sense to me. And I hope I don't lose you on this. We studied this in Romans 5. We talked about the garden. And about how we live in this world that has inherited the sinful nature of Adam, which is true. But my problem with that, my problem with that is not that I don't think it's true, but I think we give it too much power. I feel like the Adam problem gives Christians an excuse to live as if the New Testament never even happened. And allows us to reduce what Jesus did to merely a payment for what Adam did so that we can go to heaven someday and spend eternity with Jesus. Like, we have this mindset that because Adam ate the fruit, now Jesus has to die. And that's the lump sum of the entire story. Now, Jesus did pay for what Adam did, among everything else. But if you understand, especially Hebrew literature in the Old Testament, Adam was not a dominant figure in the Old Testament. He was not the hero that Abraham was, or Moses was, or uh, David was. But every single story was an echo of the story of Adam. 
everyone, they all follow that same pattern of brokenness and restoration. Last night, I went through every single time the word Adam was used in the Old Testament. It is used 552 times. Maybe I missed something, I may have, but the only time he's used as a person is in Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, and then some translations in Deuteronomy 32, 8, uh, it says that God divided up mankind, and in some translations, like the Old King James, it says God separated the sons of Adam. That's the only other time in the entire thing that is used as a person. Now, here's the significance of that. Every other time, it was man or it was mankind. No, it, was, it was all references to a man, not, not reference to a specific man, but to all men. Even the book of Jonah when God tells Jonah, should I not pity Nineveh? He says, there are 120,000 Adams and much livestock. Adam was everybody's name because it's not just Adam's problem. It's our problem. It's the human condition. But Paul in Romans 5, he goes through section after section showing why everything that made Adam seem so powerful, Jesus was more powerful. One trespass condemned everybody, but one act of righteousness now justified everybody, declared everybody righteous. One man's disobedience made many men sinners. One man's obedience made many men righteous. Listen, I get the concept of original sin and the sin of Adam and the power that sin has in our world because of him, but we have an original Jesus who has triumphed over our original sin. And in those days, one of the things that the Hebrews were looking for as they awaited a Messiah was they were looking for a firstborn son. And part of the reason for that, and there's a lot of reasons for that, but part of the reason for that is the way that it was viewed in those days was whatever the firstborn was, so everybody else would be. It was, it was um, if the first, so if the firstborn is righteous, then everybody's going to be righteous. Uh, everything was community back then. It was, it was how it was. It doesn't mean that a person can't stray from that righteousness, but if the firstborn is righteous, that's what the house is. If a per- firstborn is wicked, that's a wicked house. So what they were looking for in their Messiah, part of what they were looking for was they were looking for a firstborn king. Somebody who was righteous and on account of him being righteous would make all of them righteous. But notice what Paul says in verse 29. Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers. We need to stop leaning on the first Adam as an excuse for being who we shouldn't be. If we keep doing that, we're never going to fulfill the cultural mandate. We're never going to be who we're supposed to be for the world that needs us. Stop leaning on the first Adam and start leaning into the new Adam who died so that we could be declared righteous, made whole, and destined to be somebody who's greater than the first Adam. That's you. You are destined to be greater than Adam was. So you can actually go out and be the person that you're destined to be. So I can actually go out and be the person that I'm destined to be. Listen to this. Jesus Christ is the new Adam. He lived the life that Adam couldn't. But think about this. Think about how significant this is. What does Adam mean? Humanity. Again, over 500 times in the Old Testament. Adam, humanity. So he, the person of Adam, he did what we all do. He forever has been the image of how humans have failed to live up to the glory that we're called to. 
But if Adam represents humanity and Jesus is the new Adam, then that means Jesus is the new humanity. He is the new way to be human. He is the upside-down kingdom that will, in the end, prevail against the violent one that we're living in right now that seems to be on top. And we are conformed into the image of the new humanity, meaning that Jesus Christ has given us everything we need to be the agents of change that we are called to be in our world. He's given us the perfect example. He's living the perfect life. He said, if you do this and you do this, you just, just live like me and the world will change. He's given us the Holy Spirit. If we do what he did with the power that he had, which we're given, then the world will change. There's one more significant point that we need to flesh out about Jesus as the firstborn. And that is understanding the role in the family between the firstborn and the secondborn. See, the way that it worked in that day was this. The firstborn son was the firstborn, period. That's, that was set in stone. Every child thereafter the firstborn was the secondborn. You could be the thirdborn, the fifthborn, the twelfthborn, you're considered the secondborn. There's a super spiritual term Pentecostals love to use during prayer meetings. They say, they're praying over somebody and they'll pray something along these lines. They say, Lord, give them a double portion. Give them a double portion. And what we think we're asking for is a double anointing of our li- on our lives. Because that seems to be what happened in the story of Elijah. Uh, with, with Elisha. It's actually fascinating because Elisha asks Elijah for a double portion. And in the end, the Bible actually records 14 miracles by Elijah and 28 by Elisha. So that's kind of interesting. It's pretty incredible. And because of that, we use that as, as this, this reason to go into prayer meetings and ask for a double portion, which if that were what it is, if that were what a double portion is, and we literally get double the miracles every time somebody prays it for us, how screwed up would that, like, first of all, it would be like the most, it'd be like the proof of all proofs that none of it is real because you pray, you pray for a double portion and then you go, how many prayer meetings have we been to? We pray that. 20 prayer meetings and you have a million portion. If it doubles every time you go to a prayer meeting, suddenly you have four, eight, 16, a million after 20. It becomes very obvious, you know, that may not be working. Okay, so that, that, that alone is a kind of weird reason to pray for that particular thing. If God actually were to give that to us. But it, I mean, it'd be amazing if he did. Every single problem in the world would be solved by our miracles. I'm not against it. I, I believe God wants to do more in your life and through your life than, than, what he, than, than he's done before. I believe he wants to do more in me. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't deny those things. I think they're amazing. But we should abandon that language at least until we understand it. And we shouldn't pray it over somebody unless they actually want us to after they understand it. Because what Elisha actually was asking Elijah for was not just a ministry that was twice as powerful as Elijah's. He was asking for the firstborn blessing. He was asking Elijah, can I be your successor? Can I be responsible to carry what you started? It's actually a very big request, and I'll show you why. Elijah actually says, Elijah says to Elijah, he's like, dude, that's a big thing that you're asking. It's a hard thing you're asking. See, the way that a double portion works like is this. When a father died, say he has six sons. And they're all part of the family, and they're all going to receive a portion of what's the father's. So say this is the father's inheritance. They're going to all then, they're going to then, between six of them, they will then divide up that entire inheritance into seven portions. And each of his children would get their share, and the firstborn would receive two portions. 
And because our world is so money-focused and we're like hungry for more and more and more and more, we see that and we're like, I want the double. Give me the more. Give me more portion. But it doesn't always end up being a blessing. Pastor Brad Reed, uh, who's our, our Don and I's mentor in New York City, he's going to be here and speak in a few months next spring. Really excited about that. He has a great teaching on that that helped frame this a lot more, helped me understand this. So first of all, when you get the double portion— You're also now in charge of putting all of your father's affairs in order with that portion. So from that portion comes the burial. And when somebody else in the family dies, that double portion also pays for their burial. Then when your brother or your sister sins or commits a crime or owes someone a debt and maybe they can't pay it, maybe they disappear, they go off somewhere, nobody can find them, guess who's now held responsible? The firstborn. The double portion is the weight of everything. So if your younger brother murdered somebody and goes to a place of refuge, guess who gets put on trial? The firstborn. The double portion. Pastor Brad actually puts it this way. He says, the firstborn gets justice, or you could say even judgment. Firstborn gets judgment. Secondborn gets mercy. The firstborn son bears the weight of the justice and the judgment on behalf of the entire family and everybody else gets mercy. So yes, there's more money. But suddenly you're the one held responsible for the well-being of everyone and held accountable for the things that other people in your family did. Now, think about what we read earlier in 827. We kind of breeze over this part. It says, he who searches hearts So God is the searcher of hearts, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for us according to the will of God. So God searches our hearts. He looks deep down, and he knows exactly what's going on in our hearts. Most of us think, I wouldn't want God doing that. I don't want him searching my heart, but he knows exactly what's going on. But what does he say? It says, he searches our heart, and yet the only thing that matters is that he knows the mind of of the Spirit. Because Even when we don't know the right thing to do, the Spirit is in there interceding on our behalf even when we owe a debt that we cannot pay. We're not the firstborn. The firstborn who has the double portion, he has enough in his account to cover all of it. So Romans 2.16 when it says, uh, on that day God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. God will search your mind, he will see your heart, and yet all he will see is Jesus. Because Jesus Christ is the firstborn. He has taken responsibility for all who would come after him. He has paid our unpaid debts. He has died for the secrets that are buried in the darkest places of our hearts. Because Jesus Christ is the firstborn. God has now declared everybody in the family who will come after him to be righteous. Because when God sees you, He sees Jesus. When God judges the secrets of your heart, he does it with Jesus, standing right there on that scale with you. And God will never condemn an innocent man. Spirit intercedes for you. Jesus died for you. Don't waste your life living in yesterday's mistakes. Live in Jesus. Be conformed to the image of Jesus. Love people like Jesus loves people. 
the world can get better. But only if more people start looking more like Jesus. Jesus.